Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government and politics and go on to do really interesting things. I'm your host, Jim Papa. I'm a partner at Global Strategy Group, and I'm pleased to say that uh, today um, uh, you'll be hearing my conversation with Steve Israel, a former congressman who served in New Yorkers for eight terms in the House, a Democrat from Long Island. He rose within the House to serve as Assistant Democratic Whip, co-chair of the House Democratic Study Group on National Security Policy, chair of the DCCC, and chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. Steve retired in 2017, uh, and since then he's published a book, his second, uh, and today he directs the Nonpartisan Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University, my beloved alma mater. We spoke with Steve on July 14th, remotely, of course, given the circumstances. Little known uh, to folks who are very well aware of your career on Capitol Hill um, is that you started out as a staffer. And I'm going to get to that in in just a minute. Um, But I wanted to first talk about kind of where you grew up and how you grew up. And I understand that you were born in Brooklyn, raised on Long Island. Tell me about your parents and what it was like growing up in Levittown. Well, first, thanks so much for inviting me on the show. I've always been a fan of yours, Jim, and I'm, I'm delighted to participate. Uh, yes, it is true. I, I was born in Brooklyn. It's what gave me my sharp elbows and enabled me to succeed as a member of Congress and in politics. <laughs> Br- Brooklyn has its own brand of, of uh, political tactics and strategies. Um, and I, you know, I, look, I grew up in kind of the quintessential middle class household. Uh, my parents uh, moved to Levittown, uh, when I was born. Levittown was America's first suburb, tiny little house, all they can afford. Uh, they did it on the GI bill. My dad returned from the army, uh, served in, uh, Alaska. Uh, and, uh, you know, we grew up in a fairly, uh, comfortable, uh, community. Uh, and in the 1970s, when I was, um, just becoming a teenager, uh, the economy kind of turned and, uh, suddenly, uh, the, the things that we were used to, the vacations and things like that became tougher and tougher for my parents to afford. My mom opened up a, a typing service uh, in in the den. Uh, people may not remember what a typewriter is, but there used to be such a thing. And so I would watch like I would watch like the Brady Bunch on television next to the clacking and clicking of, of my mom's typewriter. Uh, and that's where I kind of got this sense of, uh, of fairness to the middle class. You know, I went to a community college because I couldn't afford, my family couldn't afford George Washington University. So I went to Nassau Community College and then uh, that prepared me to go to George Washington University. Uh, and I did it mostly on on uh, student financial assistance or federal loans. Uh, and so everything that I did in Congress and in politics uh, geared towards middle-class security and prosperity uh, w- came out of my own DNA. Yeah. Now, tell me about um, when you went to GW, did you come to Washington, D.C. and choose to go to school at GW because you knew you liked politics or did you just like the school and found yourself in Washington and sort of met politics there? No, actually, you know, ever since I was a teenager, uh, I started volunteering on campaigns. So in high school, uh, you know, I would ride my bike to uh, campaign headquarters, a congressional campaign on Long Island. Uh, against Congressman Norman Lent, who was the Republican incumbent at the time. Uh, and so I volunteered uh, for that, and I became a Democratic committeeman uh, as, uh, as a teenager. Uh, and 
So uh, politics had always been in my bloodstream. Uh, and I chose George Washington University for two reasons. Number one, uh, it was uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, in my view, the capital of American politics. Uh, and number two, its faculty, uh, many of them had practical experience working in various federal departments, working in campaigns, working in the White House. And I wanted that kind of practical and experiential instruction. Yeah. And so when you graduated, um, your, you began working for then-Congressman Richard Ottinger of New York. Tell me how you got there. Had you volunteered on his campaign? Um, and so how did you make it to Capitol Hill? So actually, before I went to work for former Congressman Ottinger, uh, I was a part-time, get this, another kind of antiquated title, computer operator for Congressman Bob Matsui from Sacramento, California. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, so I would go to class, I would go to, to GW uh, during the day and then show up in Congressman Matsui's office in the Cannon House office building at about six and enter uh, addresses from constituent mail for three or four hours uh, and then leave, uh, go have dinner and uh, prepare for the next day. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, wasn't a legislative correspondent, but I was the person who in those days, this, this is uh, in, uh, I guess, 1982, 81 or 82, uh, back in those days, you know, you had to tediously enter uh, constituent addresses and code it by issue. So I started there and then uh, I had heard about an opening for Congressman Dick Ottinger from Westchester uh, in New York. I was a New Yorker. I always had an interest in foreign policy and national security uh, and I applied for a job as a, a legislative assistant, uh, got that job and stayed there for three years. And everything, everything that Dick Ottinger taught me uh, was responsible for my election to Congress many years later. I think it was about 17 years later. Say one other thing about this. It was really kind of a surreal moment when I was sworn into uh, the United States Congress, January 3rd, 2001, raised my right hand, took my oath to the Constitution, and the first person to shake my hand was Congressman Bob Matsui, who was still serving. I went to work for him in his freshman year. He was still serving when I was elected. Uh, he, uh, very tragically, he died several years later. But that moment, shaking hands with my former boss, my first boss on Capitol Hill, was a moment that I will always remember. I got to know uh, uh, Congressman Metsui um, sort of tangentially. I was there while he was there, and um, he was a leader um, on Ways and Means. Um, he's such an impressive man. Tell me about what you learned from both of your bosses. What were they like, and what did you take away from them as leaders? Well, you know, I didn't have much interaction with Congressman Matsui because uh, I was the night computer operator. Um, and so I can speak more expansively about what uh, Congressman Ottinger uh, taught me. I just had over the past couple of days a, an email interaction with him. I'd actually, I hit him up for a contribution to the Biden campaign. Uh, and he responded in an email saying, you know, I'm 91 years old. Uh, I've given all my money to my family. I've made some contributions to Biden, but I can't do what you asked. Uh, and I, I emailed him back saying, well, don't blame me for the request. Blame you because you're <laughs> the one who got me started. And I never would have been in Congress without you. And he responded, I'm happy to take some of the credit, which is very nice uh, of him. 
Uh, Dick Ottinger um, was, uh, it, he was a tough boss. Um, he was kind of a stickler for detail. So if you wrote a dear colleague letter uh, and uh, the phrasing was off or you made, or you had a grammatical error uh, or a misspelling, he would return it to you with, uh, with the word sloppy scroll to top it. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I used to fear every morning coming in and, you know, getting uh, a, a submission back from him uh, that he didn't like. On the other hand, if he liked what you, what you did, he would write, and I could see it in front of me right now so vividly, well done. You know, uh, and that well, I collected all those well dones. Uh, yeah. They were so meaningful to me. So what I learned from Dick Ottinger was detail counts. How you express yourself uh, as an elected official is very important, and accuracy matters. You have to check the facts. You can't have a member of Congress that you're working for say something uh, to be embarrassed later. That kind of, it, you know, it was like a kind of a, a, a conventional, uh, almost grammar school teaching gave me the discipline that I needed to make sure that later in life, uh, as I was expressing myself or writing as a member of Congress, um, that I was doing it in a detailed, authentic, and accurate way. Yeah, that is so important. And and you're right. That's something that's unique about, I think anyway, uh, being a congressional staffer, so much of what you do is served up to a principal who then takes it public. And yes. that is real accountability. Um, because the media and it being an antagonistic situation, right? There's one party always looking to criticize mm -hmm. the other. There are people who are going to pressure test every word in every sentence. Exactly. Very well put. So uh, after uh, you worked for Congressman Ottinger, you eventually made your way to the Huntington Town Board, where you served for eight years. Um, tell me about that transition and when and how you sort of reached the conclusion, hey, I could do this and I'd be good at it. So Dick Ottinger taught me uh, about the importance of public service and particularly the influence that a member of Congress or that member's staff can have. He was a very empowering boss. Uh, and so we were required every morning as a condition of our employment to read the New York Times. And if we saw something that bothered us, uh, something that we thought could be changed, we were just able to do it. You know, we could, he had to approve everything. So uh, I remember quite, quite vividly, Ronald Reagan decided to, this must have been in 1982, 83, to uh, deploy troops to El Salvador. And I was reading a New York Times story about uh, that this might be a potential violation of the War Powers Act. Uh, and I did a memo to Dick Ottinger saying, the Times says that this may be a potential violation of the War Powers Act. I think we ought to uh, organize uh, some of your colleagues uh, around legislation that would stop this. Uh, and his response was, go for it. Uh, and we did it. Uh, and I learned from him that members of Congress can change policy and their staffs can do the same. That's when I decided that I wanted to be a member of Congress myself. So I moved back to New York to run. I didn't think it would take me 17 years <laughs> to actually get elected to Congress. <laughs> and I didn't realize the importance of just damn good luck in setting up the circumstances where you can run and win. Um, but I, I went home. Uh, I decided I needed to uh, learn what it's like to be a candidate. I ran in a, you know, I'm a Democrat. I ran in a brutally, brutally Republican district. It was a Tea Party district, like 
27 years before, 20 years before the Tea Party. Uh, And uh, I put myself through it. I was running against an incumbent Suffolk County legislator uh, who, at a debate, uh, informed me as we shook hands that she was carrying a gun. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was a rough debate. Uh, And I lost. Did you ask if it was loaded? Yeah, well, I assumed it was, right? (laughs) Uh, And I just got shellacked. But... Here's what I learned. I loved campaigning. I just loved it. I loved meeting people. Uh, I loved uh, being able to talk about the stuff I believed in. Uh, and a few years later, I actually moved to a, an area more conducive to Democrats, ran for the Huntington Town Council in the North Shore of Long Island, won, served there six years, and my next stop was the United States Congress. Amazing. Yeah, so that was you were elected in 2000, which was uh, not a great year for Democrats. And no. your district, um, while you made it look very Democratic, it is sort of famously known for independence, a good chunk yeah. of a swing vote. So it has a, that nature to it. Uh, after your first term, Newsday called you the rookie of the year based on your legislative accomplishments and a national rising star. Because you passed more legislation than any other freshman Democrat. My question for you is, how did being a staffer uh, and your work on the on the town council prepare you to be effective? You know, what leg up did you have on your colleagues? So I uh, look, I don't know if I had a leg up on my colleagues, but my approach to legislation was forged and fashioned as a staffer on Capitol Hill. I had a sense of. of the process, first of all, uh, you know, I knew how you do a dear colleague. Uh, I knew how you have to reach across the aisle and find a Republican who will work with you on an issue. Uh, so I had a sense of a practical sense of the intricacies of the legislative process on Capitol Hill. And that was a, clearly an advantage. I didn't have to learn it at freshman orientation. I did it for several years. Um, that was the first. The second thing was, um, I learned the practical skill of relating legislation to constituent needs. And so Congressman Ottinger was very, very, uh, you know, everything we did uh, had to reflect his values, but also had to have resonance with his constituents. And so being a staffer taught me how to relate the two, uh, how to blend the two, Uh, good policy, but also something that constituents care about. Once you find yourself in the position of being a principal, you were then managing 20 plus sta- congressional yeah. staff in, in at least two places. I don't know how many district offices you had. How many? Did- I had one district office, but in literally okay. three locations because we were redistricted several times. Oh, right. Okay. So you've got yeah. staff spread all yeah. over the yeah, yeah. district and in DC, uh, plus you've got a campaign staff. What in your mind really makes the, the successful staffer? Like what do they what do they do that you just looked at them and said they're invaluable? Yeah. Um, so you've got to have a blend, uh, in my view, uh, and and members of Congress and former members of Congress obviously have different views on this. In my view, a successful staffer has the perfect balance of political skill and policy chops. You've got to be substantive on an issue, but you've got to also understand how that issue resonates back home. Uh, and how to make it apply to your constituents' interests. So when a staffer would come in to me uh, and say, I have an idea, this is what I want to do, and could tell me why it made sense from a substantive policy perspective, 
But why people would care about it in New York's second congressional district or ultimately third congressional district, that was just golden, absolutely golden. Yeah. And, you know, when you're interviewing people, did you have a, a question or two or a life experience that you looked for? Uh, yeah. Okay. So tell me your favorite yeah. interview question. So I, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you and your listeners into my little secret. Um, <laughs> my first question in every interview was, what baseball team do you root for? And uh, it wasn't to break the ice. Uh, it, it was, I, I posed it for a reason. I wanted to see whether they read my bio to prepare for the interview. Because in my bio, at the very end, it said, the only thing that Congressman Israel is uh, relentlessly partisan about is his beloved New York Mets. So if they came in and said, well, I'm a Yankees fan, but I guess if I want the job, I have to be a Mets fan, you're hired. If they came in, <laughs> That's actually perfect. Is that perfect? <laughs> if they came in and said, I'm a Mets fan, I would say, well, why? If they, if they alluded to the fact that they read it in the bio, that brought me back to Dick Ottinger and the lessons he taught me, which is research, right? Pay attention to detail and make that detail relevant to in either a constituent or in the case of an interview, the interviewer. That's right. You got to say Keith Hernandez or Doc Gooden or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just drop um, that and you're hired. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, what about the flip side? You know, not everyone is cut out to be a staffer. Um, what are sort of the the fatal pitfalls if they if they make this mistake it makes your blood boil everyone can make a mistake and recover <laughs> yeah. but if they make it repeatedly they're just not cut out for the job yeah i'll, I'll give you a very specific example uh we had a staffer uh who was working on transportation issues and i was a newly elected member in a district that had been held by republican rick lazio now let me set the stage for you this was a, a very republican district rick lazio uh was winning with 70 75 percent of the vote he decided to leave the house to run against hillary clinton for the senate i jumped into the race had a brutal democratic primary just squeaked by in that primary and was now in one of the top tier open seat elections in the country in 2000 again representing a very Republican district that, you know, uh, it was a waterfront district uh, along something called the Great South Bay. I think that they believe that Rick Lazio could walk back and forth across the Great South Bay. That's how, <laughs> that's how beloved he was. And so suddenly I'm, I'm the elected official and uh, we, we didn't think I was going to get reelected. Uh, in fact, I was so dour about my prospects that are, and so cheap a human being, I refused to buy a dresser for my little efficiency on Capitol Hill, because I thought, what a waste of money this is going to be. You're just going to be moving in two years. And I'll, so I, we had a staffer working on transportation issues, and we, we needed some help on the transportation committee. And so he called up a, a, a committee staffer. The guy comes in, and my chief of staff, uh, a guy you may know named John Lapp, uh, and this uh, legislative assistant, uh, are talking to him. And at one point, uh, the LA says, look, you know we're one of the top, most vulnerable Democrats in the Congress. We, and Lazio may run against us. We need to deliver this. We need it because we need to talk about it in the campaign. And this staffer very politely smiled and said, um, I think you should understand that I'm the Republican staffer on the committee. <laughs> oh. And could you imagine? So jaws dropped. 
And uh, my chief of staff, John Lapp, stood up and said, well, thank you very much, and shook hands with the guy and ushered him out. And my my L.A., um, literally, uh, tears were pooling in his eyes. Um, and I, you know, I said to him, look, mistakes happen. You were being entrepreneurial. You just you wanted to get somebody up here. Uh, you should have paid more attention to detail. Um, but don't think about this uh, on your next idea. Just be more attentive uh, to the facts, but don't let this discourage you from being entrepreneurial. He turned out to be a wonderful staffer. Wow. Wow. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, in that, uh, when I say it's great, obviously it's a, it's a mistake, uh, that, you know, makes my blood uh, turn cold. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, right. The hairs uh, raise on the back of my neck as a former chief of staff and former staffer. Um, Mm -hmm. but what's great is that you also recognized the, um, you know, the good in what he was trying to do, right? Like he failed on the prep and and that could cause some serious damage, but you didn't just snuff it, you know, snuff him out completely. It no, was you a- You can't do that. Yeah. yeah. You can't right. just snuff him out because then, you know, what's the use of them coming to work? You know, you want to, look, if they were, as you said in the question, if he had done it again, if there were repeated mistakes, yeah, well, you know, see you later, but you got to give people a chance. I'll give you, if I may, I'll give you another uh, example of, of what I thought was really bad staffing. Uh, again, you know, I talked about the importance of marrying legislative to uh, residents back home. Uh, I had been convinced to introduce legislation by a bunch of uh, amateur radio operators uh, in my district. Uh, who were concerned that uh, many condominium developments and co-op developments uh, in New York were banning uh, amateur radio towers. And they said, you know, back in the day, these towers were 40 feet high. So yeah, you want to ban them. But now you could operate an amateur radio with a tower inside your, your house that's about three feet high. So we decided to introduce legislation that uh, would have prohibiting ham radio or amateur radio operations uh, as long as they had an antenna less than uh, three feet in height or four feet. And so I pulled up to this press conference. We decided to do this press conference in front of the home uh, of a ham radio operator. And my staffer at the time, and we joke about this today, somehow he positioned the podium in the driveway of this house and didn't realize that behind the house was a 40-foot amateur radio tower. (laughs) So so the camera, you know, we had local news there. The cameraman actually came to me, came up to me as I was getting out of the car. He goes, Congressman, I shouldn't really do this, but really bad visual. He said, not only only is there a 40-foot tower, but the damn thing is casting a shadow right down the driveway, right at the podium. Uh, he said, you may want to consider, reconsider the optics here, which we did. Uh, and there too, you know, I, I, I mean, I was livid, I'll admit. I was livid. I called my chief of staff uh, and, and uh, he, he, poor person, had an earful. Uh, but we adjusted quickly and, uh, you know, I, I talked, I calmed down, talked to this uh, district uh, uh, outreach director uh, and uh, got it out of my system. And he was more careful from from then on. Well, bad advance is a category yeah. of workplace screw up <laughs> that uh, is really unique and special. One I actually have in my office when I eventually get back there that I've carried with me for years, a photograph from a David Dinkins campaign uh, when he was running in New York City. And he's doing kind of a double thumbs up 
but behind him is a statue of Ben Franklin, and his thumb is right in Ben Franklin's crotch. Oh, and I, and I had wow. a boss give me that photo. Fortunately, I had nothing to do with that, but my boss gave that to me as a reminder of the importance of the visual. So let me. So I have a I have a segment um, uh, called in the vault, and I would like to know a time when you screwed up as a staffer or uh, you know during your time on Capitol Hill that it you know you knew you screwed up, um, but you. Face it head on and tell me how you recovered. Um, I think it was, uh, how much time do you have? I mean, this must be a really big vault <laughs> if you want me to go through every screw up that I made. It's a new I made, podcast. I a, so Yeah, uh, I, like I made a ton of them. Um, I think in the case of working for Dick Gottinger, um, there was nothing, you know, cosmic, not, no universal screw up. It was silly mistakes. Uh, so I remember I wrote a speech for him where I somehow confused Bolivia and Brazil. Uh, now, it was caught by the chief of staff before it went to Congressman Ottinger. Um, but the fact that I can still remember this mistake, which happened in 1981, uh, in 2020, should give you a sense of, of how it affected me. It was just a dumb mistake. Uh, I wasn't thinking. Uh, and... Um, not catastrophic, but I learned from that that you just got to double check everything. Can you imagine if this congressman, you know, had read this speech and talked about Brazil oh. instead of Bolivia? It just would have been, you know, horrible, horrible. And so I realized this, the, the role of a staffer is so vitally important. I mean, you put words in the principal's mouth. And if those words are wrong, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, um. Tell me, uh, you know, because you've been on both sides, member and staffer, what would staff members learn if they, if this were an episode of Trading Places and they spent a month as the member and then transported back to being staffer, what would, what insights would they gain that um, would be helpful? Sure. Uh, I think uh, first and foremost, just how crushing uh, the job can be. So in many congressional offices, you know, it's fairly stovepipe. You know, you've got the press, the comms director, you've got the chief of staff, you've got the senior LA, the LAs who are working on specific uh, portfolio of issues, the scheduler. Uh, and in many offices, they don't have a sense of how it all bears down on the member uh, in terms of time and demands. They may not be aware of the member's family commitments. Uh, they may not be aware of uh, the members, uh, you know, just the personal interest that a member may have in, in focusing on a specific issue. Um, sometimes they may not be aware of the fact that the member has to eat. Uh, <laughs> I remember calling yeah. my scheduler once um, and, you know, I was a little bit annoying. Uh, I called her uh, and I said, yeah, I'm just curious. Do you, do you want lunch? And of course, she assumed that I was inviting her to lunch. And she said, oh, Congressman, oh, that's so nice. I said, so you want lunch? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, well, so would I every once in a while. Could you please put it on the schedule? <laughs> that's Brooklyn. That's Brooklyn, that's Brooklyn. coming out. That's Brooklyn. Hey, you want lunch? You want some pizza? Want some pizza. Uh, so I think walking in the shoes of a member, you realize just you're being pulled by the district staff versus the Washington staff, by the press secretary versus the constituent services director. 
um, by your colleagues, by your caucus, by the leadership, by your donors, by the finance team, by the campaign team. And so it is a surreal existence where you are constantly, as a principal, as a member, uh, get feeling like you're getting torn apart. I think that would be very useful uh, for staffers to kind of understand uh, how to achieve some kind of balance that makes the, the, the uh, member of Congress's life uh, a little bit more sane. Yeah. When I was uh, Congressman Rush Holt's chief of staff, uh, he told me Love that him. he had he he's terrific. Um, yeah. He once told me that another member described being a member as being a television set where somebody else changes the channel all the time. <laughs> That's great. And I and that. I it's it's mentally exhausting. And I you know I mean all of us who are just dealing with you know Zoom conference fatigue during COVID. I, I I do think that that is something that is so difficult to appreciate and frankly, probably impossible to fully appreciate as a staffer until you've lived it. But having some visibility into that life um, would would make people better at uh, kind of managing the member and managing the full staff to deliver what the member needs. But there's also an advantage for a member having been a former staffer. So... Um... You know, I kind of learned the tricks of the trades because uh, tricks of the trade because I was an offender uh, as a staffer. So sometimes a staffer would come in and suggest something or say something or I'd ask them something and they'd give me an answer. And I would say, wait a minute, I did this. <laughs> I tried this one day. I know exactly what you're doing. Uh, so <laughs> I know that bag of tricks because I pulled some from that bag when I was a staffer. Yeah. Uh, so there was an advantage both ways. Um. Well, you must be a glutton for punishment because in addition to being a uh, an elected official, a member of the House uh, from a competitive district, you also served as DCCC chairman for two terms. And I think as anyone knows um, who's served on Capitol Hill or, or been on Capitol Hill, um, you know, your political acumen is well known. And I think anyone who, who runs the D-Trip or the DS or the Republican counterparts, it's very important that their colleagues have trust in their political skill because they're not, you know, they're working for everybody. Um, in 2012, uh, you picked up eight seats in a very difficult redistricted environment. Um, 2014, was a difficult year, a midterm election for a second term president and the tide swung back and Republicans ended up uh, gaining a very large majority. Um, tell me about um, what do you, what, what do you say uh, to the staff, um, you know, after a defeat like that, that is so environmental, number one, right? So many things are outside of your control um, and yet people are working nonstop for years as if, you know, um, their actions that day will make things incrementally better. So it's, it's you know, it's such a, a contrast with intensity of effort, which does have an impact. And yet there's still a large portion of elections that, you know, are outside of a campaign's control. Tell me how you dealt with that um, in that moment. Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that uh, you know chairing one of the political committees is basically uh, you are trying to figure out how to exploit a, a weather forecast uh, or defend against a weather forecast. It is entirely environmental. And so 
you know, when I when we picked up those eight seats, I got much more credit than I deserved. And you know, when we lost seats, I probably got more criticism than I deserved. When Rahm Emanuel won the House, um, you know, he did an exceptional job. He figured out how to exploit the environment. Chris Van Hollen, uh, you know, we had that horrible 2010. There's nothing that he could have done that would have changed that environment. Nothing. So, but what you're doing is you're managing weather forecasts. Uh, more to your question, um, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, look, you're going to political combat and you develop the, the camaraderie uh, that uh, anybody who's been in that kind of uh, combat develops. Uh, and uh, you've got to understand that you're not going to win every battle. Uh, you, as long as you have, and I've had this conversation with uh, DTRIP staff and others, if you did everything that you were supposed to do, and nothing that you weren't supposed to do, you did as well. You did as well as you could. In other words, don't bemoan a loss where you executed uh, perfectly. Uh, if you lost because you made a mistake, that's a problem. I've never been involved in a race, either at DTRIP or anywhere else, where the loss was a result of an error. The loss was a result of running against a superior candidate, being outspent those external variables. And I think that's an important lesson for political staffers. Put, put a campaign together, develop your strategy, execute, right? Be tactical and strategic. If at the end of the day, you still lost, as long it was, as it wasn't something that, uh, you know, you contributed to, uh, then you did well. Yeah. I, that's how people I, just can on, stay in politics. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. And on this, you know, I remember one heartbreaking loss we had was in Mark Sanford's district uh, in South Carolina. It was an open seat. And we were like, how could we lose this one? You know, he had, uh, you know, all of these issues. Uh, and the candidate was a woman named Elizabeth Coder, uh, Colbert Bush, uh, who was Stephen Colbert's sister. Uh, and she ran a, a flawless campaign and Dietra put a ton of money behind it. And we executed perfectly. And we lost. Uh, and I remember the director of DCCC at the time coming in uh, with, again, tears welling in her eyes and, you know, agitated. And she said, I can't believe we lost. And I, I said to her, name one thing that you did that you shouldn't have or name something that you didn't do that you should have. And she said, no, no, we did everything that we were supposed to do. And I said, then we would have lost anyway. So you've got, let's move on to the next campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Um Speaking of moving on, let me move to your post-congressional uh, career because I, as a Cornell graduate, am ah. so excited that you are the director of a new Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell. Um, tell me about the Institute, uh, You know how it works, uh, who is involved, and what you're doing. Well, we're going to have to get you on one of our panels now that I know that you're a Cornellian. Um, I'd be happy to. The, uh, you're on. Uh, we don't pay anything, and it's aggravating, but and that's why we're going to take you. Um, well, <laughs> fantastic. This podcast doesn't pay anything either, so right. even exactly. trade. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I launched the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University, uh, and uh, it's meant to kind of break through this volatile and highly tribalized political environment that we're in and deepen discourse and raise understanding. Uh, and so we have prominent global and national leaders do events for us. I had Reince Priebus, uh, and I also had Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, Congressman Tom Cole, uh, and Congressman Adam Schiff, Senator Bill Cassidy, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. 
And so we try and create kind of a bipartisan uh, exploration of issues without all the screaming and, and yelling. Uh, and we're based in New York City. Uh, and for anybody who's interested in participating in our many programs, our website address, if I may put in the plug, is iopga.cornell.edu. It's iopga.cornell.edu. And I'm serious. I'm going to call you and ask you to participate in one of our panels. I would be happy to. Um, Great. And so tell me this. The undergraduates that are participating, um, they may look at you and uh, and pantlessly bring in and think to themselves, man, that is the other side of the universe. I love this politics thing. I think I'd, I'd want to do it. I'm not sure I could ever get there. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give them? You know, I, uh, I actually teach at uh, Cornell. Uh, and uh, so I have, often, uh, I have uh, office hours and students frequently come in and ask that very uh, question and express that concern. You know, I'm interested in it. I just don't know if I can do it. Uh, and the advice I, I give them is, if you have the passion, you've got to explore it. And you're at a point in your life where you're meant to explore your passions. And if you learn that you're not as passionate as you thought, or that the negatives outweigh the sense of satisfaction, then go in another direction. But I'll tell you, we're in, in a we're in a pivotal moment right now in culture and society and in politics. And if you are um, looking at a career as a congressional staffer, or running campaigns, or even being a candidate, this is the time to do it. It is one of those transformational moments. You're young enough where you can explore that passion, that curiosity, and decide whether you want to build a career around it or not. Finally, to the question, I would say, in my view, there is no better place to explore your political interests and passions than being a Capitol Hill staffer. There is no experience better than that. So I encourage people to intern, uh, to get that first job, whether it's a computer operator or a staff assistant, get your foot in the door. Yeah. And uh, so I have this notion, and I, I think I'm right, uh, but I'd love to hear your point of view on it, that being a congressional staffer, uh, or you know, whether it's in Congress or actually other areas of federal government, uh, state government, politics, I love the industry because you develop this Swiss army knife of, of tools and tactics, yes. um, right? I mean, you have to do so many things. You have to learn a lot and you're asked to do things before you know how to do them. Um, and so you've got people who can coach you and educate you and, um, and all of that, but you have to do a lot. Um, tell me about that skill set um, that, you know, you drew upon for an extremely successful career and you watched people develop. Yeah. Oh, it's a really, really important question. Um, so I, when I was uh, in Congress, I valued what I called utility players. Uh, this goes back to my, my love of the Mets. I love somebody who, you know, was a legislative assistant, but could also, but also understood what skills were necessary in order to pursue a press angle. Uh, or having a comms director uh, who was a utility player and could understand uh, if she saw, for example, a constituent services win back home, getting a veteran, a retroactive payment, how to turn that into a press conference uh, or legislation. So having that Swiss Army knife uh, ability, uh, being able to, to you know, pull out whatever tool you need to address a problem or to advance an issue uh, is indispensable. And we try to train our staff uh, to, to have those skills. 
Uh, and in fact, we cross-trained quite a few. We would routinely bring DC staffers to the district office. I think a lot of members of Congress do this to shadow uh, a constituent services uh, representative or the outreach director. And we'd bring our district staff to Washington to shadow the LAs so that they could kind of uh, uh, sharpen those utility tools. Yeah, so important. And that I would imagine that that really helped DCDO uh, relations, which some can sometimes be frayed, right? The, oh, there's um, no question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No be, question. Being about able it. to see what somebody else does and have a deeper appreciation for the difficulty of their job is huge. Really That's important. Right. That's exactly right. So speaking of Swiss Army knives, um, your your Swiss Army knife is one of those really big, thick ones because <laughs> you have subsequently written two books, uh, The Global War on Morris in 2015 and Big Guns in 2018. Um, both of these books have gotten really great reviews. Um, the Washington Post described The Global War on Morris as an unexpected delight, so spirited and funny. Chris Matthews called you uh, downright hilarious. And I understand the book was optioned by Rob Reiner uh, for uh, potential development. And Big Guns, um, which is about skewering the gun lobby, uh, was called by Booklist uh, your second brilliant political satire. And uh, best-selling author Christopher Buckley called it hilarious and ingenious and pleasingly wicked. Those are, I mean, those are terrific reviews. Um, tell me what, you know, when did you know you finally wanted to write that book, uh, you know, that, that, you, that you had in the back of your head and how did you go about it? Well, you know, I grew up in that house in Levittown with uh, three dreams. Uh, one was one day being elected to Congress. Uh, the other was being a novelist, uh, and the third was playing left field for the New York Mets. And since I since I sucked at Little League, I, I had to disqualify my baseball career. Uh, and I'm, I'm really lucky. Um, you know, two of those dreams came true. Writing has always has always been my therapy. Uh, you know, everybody needs kind of a release. Uh, congressional staffers need a release. Uh, members of Congress need a release. My release was writing. Uh, and I would notice something uh, on the floor of the House or in the Democratic caucus uh, and just begin to reflect on it and weave it into uh, a storyline. So I did the Global War on Morris, which is about actually Dick Cheney uh, and uh, the Global War on Terror, uh, based on conversations I had with Cheney and President Bush and uh, the leadership of the House uh, and, and my own constituents. And it, it, it did very well. And as you said, was optioned to Rob Reiner. By the way, when you option a book to Hollywood, it's the equi functional equivalent of a bill being referred to committee. It means next to nothing. <laughs> um, but Rob I, Reiner you know, I, means something. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? Except he's he done thought it was worth it. optioning. So that's he good. The committee of Rob Reiner is, is worth yeah. it. May, may, I, may I just uh, say that uh, I sold him the option for a total of zero dollars and zero cents. So let's not get overly <laughs> enthused with, with the success of the book. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. But it was Rob Reiner. Uh, the second book uh, was a parody, as you say, of the gun lobby, Big Guns. And it was based on conversations that I had in the member's elevator uh, and conversations with gun lobbyists and others. Um, I think satire is a very patriotic form of dissent. Uh, you can look, I can give a one minute speech on the floor of the house on gun safety, wouldn't penetrate. Uh, I could give a 20 minute speech back home on gun safety, wouldn't penetrate. I can introduce a bill, wasn't going to pass. But writing a political satire on the issue of gun safety, 
enabled me to really express myself and was an accessible and humorous way of people of all ideologies to kind of plumb the depths of the issue. Well, uh, we could use some levity and some humor um, at ourselves. So I highly recommend people uh, check out The Global War on Morris and Big Guns. Um, my last question for you, Steve. Um, if I were to build a staffer hall of fame, not in Cooperstown, but uh, here in Washington and uh, install busts of uh, people who have done the job so well, you have gotten to observe a lot of staff members in your personal office at the DCCC, obviously other um, uh, staff members, uh, uh, other members, staff, particularly in leadership. Who would you nominate uh, for getting that bronze statue? I would nominate uh, all three of my chiefs of staff, I have to say. Uh, John Lapp, who was my first chief of staff, uh, Jack Pratt, my second, Trish Russell, my third, maybe not household names, but those, they, they deserve to be in the uh, Stafford Hall of Fame because um, they all had those, those utility instincts. They understood how to empower other staffers. They understood how to manage uh, the members' time. They understood that no legislation really matters unless people back home can understand it. They were able to, to blend the, the 30,000 foot policy that so benefited me uh, for 16 years in Congress deserves to be in that Hall of Fame, in my view. I love it. Um, I know two out of those three nominees, and they are first ballot mm -hmm. uh, nominees. When I finally get around to fundraising for this, I will give you a call um, so I can build the Hall of Fame because I know you're good okay. at it. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Steve, thank you. Uh, I really thank appreciate you, uh, your time today in the conversation, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 